We're on Esther chapter 3 this morning, transition from, from that to this. And one of the things that we started doing in Esther is having a member of our congregation each week come and read the chapter so we can really understand the story and that this is a, a real story that actually happened. And so I've asked Phil to come up today and read Esther 3. Grab your Bibles or your apps, open it to Esther 3. If you're in version, the, the event should be up. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one just right under a chair around you. And let's read Esther 3 together, and then we'll dive in and and understand it. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to him, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, In the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the province of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring and his hand, and gave it to Haman, the Agatite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman had commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces and the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued 
as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Wow, that chapter doesn't end happy, does it? This is one of those chapters that we're left hanging. We're left wondering what's going to happen next. And and that's intentional, but the author, they're setting up coming, they're setting up a coming climax and and the crux of the story that'll come in a couple weeks. But this story, this chapter, really we start to get into the meat of the story. First two chapters were set up, right? We had Queen Vashti deposed, which had to happen so that Esther could come into queenship. And, and we saw all of those things happening that were seemingly random coincidences. All the way down to Mordecai sitting at the gate and overhearing a plot to kill the king and then saving the king's life. His name is put in the history books, although no more recognition than that is given. And so we have all of these things happen. We come to chapter 3, and now we get into the actual story, the scene that the whole book is about, or the the time that the whole book's about. And today is setting up the the threat. Today is setting up what is happening and, and what the problem is. And and as we look at today, we want to look at it from two perspectives. Number one, how does this advance the story as a whole of Esther and what God is doing? But also we want to look at the characters involved and what were some of the decisions they made that led to this. And especially Mordecai, who made really what, what was a right decision, a good decision before God, right? And it just all went south. His good decision was not met with a good result. It was met with a disastrous result. And that happens in this fallen world sometimes. And and as I was thinking about this, I I want to start by thinking, how do we know when a decision is a good decision? How do we know when a decision is right? And and the world will tell us all kinds of things. We have pragmatists, right? And the pragmatists judge a decision on its outcome. If the outcome is good, it was a good decision. If the outcome is bad, it was a bad decision. And so everything is based on the, on the basis of, did it work? Now, there are all kinds of problems with that, right? You could cheat and lie and step on people to get ahead in business and get a promotion and get all kinds of money, and, and it worked. Did that make that a right decision, a good decision? No, and so we have to think beyond some of these things. Uh, we have to think beyond, did it work? Sometimes people make decisions on... Actually, I would argue probably most of the time people make decisions on what do I want? What, what will make me happy? What will fulfill my desires? And, and we don't really care about whether it's right or wrong. We don't care about anyone else. Just does this make me happy? If it makes you happy, it must be okay. That was a song probably 20 years ago now. Sorry for those that are younger. <laughs> That's an awful way to make decisions, right? Because there is no morality, there is no basis, there is no truth basis to make a decision on that. We can't look at outcomes. We can't look at our feelings for what a decision should be. Rather, it should be on the character of God. It should be on what is actually morally right and wrong based on the truth of God's character and the truth of His Word. What He has said is true. What He has said is not true. 
See, the problem with making the outcome the basis of our decision is we can't control outcomes in this world. You can make the perfect decisions and have the outcomes be horrible through no fault of your own, through forces outside of our control. No matter how much we try, we are not in control of our lives. And as soon as we let that go and trust God with that, the sooner we will have so much more peace in our lives. Because this idea that I can control the outcomes of every one of my decisions is, is a terrible, terrible way to live. And so we seek guidance from godly sources. We seek wisdom. However, the world will seek horoscopes, chants, point-and-shoot method of Bible interpretation where I say, okay, what does God want me to do today? And we point and, and, and we just follow whatever that verse says. And this one's really weird because it's about someone that's bearing their guilt. And um, So how do we make decisions? In the end, we make decisions, like I said, on the character of God. What pleases God? Not what pleases me, what pleases God? Now, I know firsthand, good decisions and right decisions and all the work we have can lead to disastrous results. I still remember very vividly my honeymoon and and planning for my honeymoon. And the word Casa Munras comes to mind. And it was this place in Monterey. And I had done all my research because I was going to make this honeymoon perfect for my new bride, right? That's, that's the desire. You don't try to find a junky place for your honeymoon. You try to find a great place for your honeymoon. And I did all the research I could. Now, this was before Google and Yelp and the internet. Um, <laughs> so I went to AAA and got one of their travel guides. I don't know. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Got one of their travel guides and they rate everything. And I went through all the hotels in Monterey and looked at all the amenities and, and got a couple of other resources of travel to Monterey. And I picked one that was highly rated. It looked beautiful. It was within our price range, had a fireplace. It was going to be great. And we get there and we walk in and my wife starts crying. <laughs> this is not good. It was, it was awful. It just was horrible. The carpet was coming up, if you can call it carpet, because it was sort of that indoor-outdoor green stuff you put on a patio that, that was covering these tile squares that were mostly there. And um, the, there really wasn't a fireplace. It was a, a little um, potbelly stove in the corner that didn't work. And um, it didn't matter that I had done my research. It didn't matter that I thought I had, had made a good decision. That decision went poorly through no fault of our own. Like I said, we didn't have Google. It's different now. And, you know, it worked out, and we laughed, and we found a different place. We didn't (laughs) very quickly, and we were good and had a great honeymoon, and we're still married. Um, Because at that moment, I thought, well, this is the shortest marriage on history. But this morning, as we talk about decisions, we want to talk about making the right decision, even if it goes badly. And that's a humorous illustration of something that wasn't a a, a decision of integrity. But what about decisions of integrity? Are we willing to do the right thing no matter what happens? Are we willing to do what is right at work, even if it means we get passed up for a promotion or possibly fired? 
Are we willing to share the gospel with our neighbor, even if they reject us, even if they laugh at us, even if they think we're a little nuts for believing that Jesus Christ, God's Son, God Himself, in the flesh, died on the cross for our sins so we don't have to pay the price? And the answer this morning is yes. Let's do the right thing no matter the consequences. Sometimes right decisions go south. Make them anyway. Make them anyway. And so we jump now to Esther chapter 3, and that's where Mordecai's at. And, and he has a choice at the beginning of this. And we start by, with the words, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. And, and right from there, we have, we have a few little clues. After these things, remember what just happened? Esther became queen, and then Mordecai and Esther saved the king's life. And that was a terrible, no good, horrible, very bad day for Esther, uh, or life. And, and Mordecai wasn't rewarded for that, was hardly even recognized for that. Now we come to after these things, and this is four to five years later. And we know that from the, the time that, that's going to be announced where the Jews are to be killed. This is four to five years later. So Esther is placed into this really difficult situation and doesn't even see how God might be using this for four to five years. Man, we aren't good at waiting, are we? She waited and, and was faithful, and we're going to see, still was able to stand up for God. But this is hard, man. We, we wait for all kinds of things that are hard. We might wait for a, a spouse. We might wait for kids. We might wait for a house. And all of these things become so important to us. But Esther and Mordecai waited on the Lord without even knowing what the result would be. And so after these things, four or five years later, Haman is promoted. And we don't know why, except that this, this man is an Agagite. And this goes back to what we talked about last week. Mordecai is from the line of King Saul. And Haman here is from the line of King Agag and the Amalekites. And if we remember back in history, 1 Samuel, we, we know that Saul was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites completely. He was called to destroy them. And King Saul thought better of, than God, thought better of God's instructions, said, yeah, I'm going to destroy most of them, but the really good stuff, I want. I want. And so he saved the king's life. He saved the best people and the best stuff. He disobeyed God. In that story, Samuel comes and, and calls him on it. He says, you're, you're sinning, and ends up killing the king in front of him. But that was the beginning of Saul's downfall. In fact, Samuel announced to Saul at that point, the throne is ripped from you. And so this is a family feud, if you call it that, that goes all the way back to Saul and Agag. And actually, if you trace it back, it goes back to Jacob and Esau. And, and so this is a setup. The author is setting us up of these two family units that really hate each other and have and, and going back to the issue of Saul and Agag, where Saul disobeyed and did not stand faithful, what will Mordecai now do in a conflict in the same vein? Will Mordecai stand faithful? Will Mordecai do what is right, no matter the consequences? And so Haman here comes on the scene, and he's an evil man, as we're going to see throughout this, almost the personification of evil. And he's set to, to the throne above all officials. 
It, if you had to sort of figure out a position today, he would maybe be King Ahasuerus's prime minister or vizier. Um, he's second only to the king. Everyone else is underneath him. His life is good. He has power. We're going to find out he's very wealthy. And now he is in charge. He's in charge of everything, especially with a king that we've found out is pretty weak and, and pretty foolhardy and lets other people lead for him. One of the perks of this is we, we see in verse 2, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Amon, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Just a side note, if the king had to command it, that means he wasn't worthy of it. Because in their culture, you gave that kind of homage to someone of his stature. But this gives us little, little clues into what this man is like. And so Haman now is on the scene. He's to be worshipped. And then in verse 2 it goes on, But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And there's the decision. There's the right decision, the just decision, the decision to honor God rather than man. There's all kinds of questions. Well, why did he do this? And and people have tried to to underplay this or or come up, but we don't know exactly why, but there's some clues here that help us understand. Because for some reason, Mordecai felt this was compromise to bow to him. Some have said it's just because of that family feud. So it's really just a, a racial thing or a political thing. Um, and, and there may be part of that there, but I think there's more happening here when we understand it. Some would say, well, evil, Haman was just so evil that Mordecai couldn't stand to bow down to him. Probably a little bit of truth there, but there's more going on. Some have said, well, Mordecai was just jealous. He, Haman got the position and he didn't. But I, I think what's happening here is that bowing down to Haman would have violated God's law. It would have violated the the commandments, the Ten Commandments, where it says you will not bow to any other god. Now, now again, bowing to a king and, and paying homage to a king was normal. We have illustrations in the Old Testament where that happens. But the wording here is different. And if you notice in your Bible, it says they bowed down and paid homage to Haman. And then, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now, whenever those two words were put together in the Old Testament... Every single time it refers to bowing down to a deity. Um, when it's just a king or when it's just something that happens in a court, only actually a whole different Hebrew word was used. But this phrase and these two words together were always to a deity. And so I, I think the text, for someone that would have understood the Hebrew of the time, I think it's clearly saying he wouldn't bow down to Haman because Haman was trying to say, I'm God. Bow down to me as a deity. Some say maybe he had an idol with him, and that could have been the, the possibility. But somehow here, Haman is probably claiming some, a, a divine status, and Mordecai is saying, no, this is my line. I will not compromise on this. One, one Jewish, um, or a Jewish targum from history says that Haman set up a statue of himself to which everyone was obliged to bow in adoration. To do obeisance to him would have been to break both the first and second commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And so the wording here is one of worship. And Mordecai says, no, I won't do this. 
There's so many similarities in, in, in the story of Esther 2 to both Daniel and Joseph. And in this case, the similarities in a lot of the wording is very similar to Daniel chapter 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we will not bow. And to Daniel 6, where Daniel says, I will choose to pray to God and not to Darius. And so this is a man that is standing up for what is right and doing the right thing. And so if you're hearing this story, you would think he did the right thing for God. Everything comes out great and they live happily ever after. But that's not what happens. Because we're only on Esther 3 and there's 10 chapters. (laughs) But we're going to find out that it didn't go well. But God knew and God was going to use that. We read on. The king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Why are you doing this? Probably a little bit of fear that everyone would be punished, but probably a little bit of of legitimately wondering why and maybe trying to get him into trouble. Because then in verse 4, And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And so we see the, the crux of his objection was his Jewishness and, and the commands to not bow to anyone else. But do you see what the servants are doing? They talk to him first, try to get him to change his mind. Then day after day, which is, is exactly the same words that's used of Joseph with Potiphar's wife, that day after day she tried to seduce him and tempt him. And day after day they said, just compromise, just bow, stop it. And Mordecai wouldn't. And so then they go tell Haman to see if his words would stand. Now, hard to, hard to understand what that means, but it, it could be to see if this was an, an exception to the policy that they could get away with. More than likely, I think they're testing Mordecai to see if he'll keep his resolve even when Haman knows. Will he still do the right thing when things go south? Will he still do the right thing when he's confronted on it and it's pointed out? And this is where everything does go south. It's not a happy ending. Well, it will be, but this chapter doesn't have a happy result to this. Because in verse 5, we get to know a little bit more about Haman. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down, which he didn't even notice it till then, did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. He he is ticked off because he is the guy in charge. He's the second in command. He's got the money. He's got the power. How dare you not bow to me? And this was an issue of his ego was bruised. Someone didn't didn't give him the respect he deserved. And so he's upset. and, And he's going to deal with this because how dare they? And so you get a little bit of the pettiness and the self centeredness of him there. It says, and he disdained in verse 6 to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, through the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, get, understand what's happening here. And he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. It can be translated, and he scorned the idea that he would just punish Mordecai. He is so full of himself that he's like, no, I am so angry that taking out all my wrath on this one man, that's not enough. Oh, no, no, because I'm so powerful, I deserve more. And this probably goes back to the the hatred between their peoples and anti-Semitism that that we're going to see is throughout the land. 
And so he says, you know what? We're just going to kill off the people. Mordecai doesn't bow to me. He's dead. Now, this should strike us a little odd because the punishment doesn't fit the crime, right? There's an old Chinese proverb that, that says, never remove a fly from your friend's head with a hatchet. I think there's a lot of wisdom to that proverb. <laughs> no, no, the punishment should fit the crime. And actually in Persian law, uh, Haman could come down on Mordecai for this, but it would have had to have been reciprocal or would have had to have been in a way that it was appropriate. But he let his anger and his pride get in the way of his rationality. And he is just responding, taking out his rage. Now, we would never do this, I know. No one here ever has had road rage because someone didn't use their signal, and so we just go off. Yeah, that, that is a response that is not appropriate to the crime. And some of you can argue with me about that afterwards. But we feel wronged, and so we're going to take it out on someone else. Parenting. We never have gotten angry at our kids for being defiant, right? We've never gotten upset over little things and then taking it out on them and big things. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't discipline defiance. Defiance should always be disciplined in an appropriate way. Defiance left unchecked, mom and dad, is going to bite you down the road. But we, it, when we over-exaggerate, when we respond, Wah! which parents feel sometimes, like once a year, When we can't control that and we respond in a way that is not appropriate to the offense, man, we're Haman. We're letting our pride and we're letting ourself get in the way of appropriate discipline and appropriate training. And so, yes, we should be hard on Haman, but understand we all have a little bit of Haman in us. And so that's the offensive right decision is point number one. The offensive right decision. Mordecai made the right decision and it offended Haman to no end. And then we get through the rest of the story and this is where we move a little quicker. Point number two is the plot presented. The plot presented. So Haman is ticked off. He's angry. He stews on it, which always festers in anger. And he comes up with a plan. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And then Haman goes to the king. Now this, we might be saying, well, what's going on? And, and, and if you heard what Phil read earlier, Haman goes to the king and says, he gives his plan. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they don't keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. And he he lays out this plan to exterminate the Jews. But that verse 7 there, we have to understand this, he, through the casting of lots, is seeking counsel from the spirits or from the gods. Uh, The poor or, or the lot was was really a large die. And I don't know if I, I think I put a picture. It, it would look something like this. This is one that they, they unearthed. And they would roll these to make decisions. So I have some dice here. And like I could say, we'll roll this to see if we stop the sermon here and go to lunch. Or if we continue. We continue. <laughs> if it was 13, we would have stopped. Um... <laughs> 
That is how they're making decisions. Now, we take this lightly and think this is just a game of chance. For them, for Haman and for the Persians, they believed that this tapped into the spirits and their gods, and this was a way God would speak to them. Now, this isn't all that out of the ordinary, because throughout the Old Testament, we see Yahweh speaking to his people through the casting of lots. But they were seeking God's direction. In this case, Haman is not seeking God's direction, but really an evil pagan divination. And so he he would cast these clay dice of sort, and, and they could have had names of months on the side, they could have had numbers, they had all kinds of writing, but probably what is happening is they are casting them and going month by month and saying, okay, I'm going to use English months. Is it, is it January? Okay, if it's, nope, not January. Is it February? Oh, maybe February. No. And, and, and the, one of the historians said they would have to come up with the same result three times for it to become law. So the picture here is Haman is going through systematically month by month and finally, it comes on the, the 12th month, 11 months away, the month of Adar. And it comes up, that's the one. The gods have spoken. And to get how chilling this is, what he's doing is he's throwing dice to figure out when to exterminate the Jews. He's picking a day to kill off a race, and he's trusting dice to do it. That is sickening. It is sickening. But he wanted to have good favor. He wanted to have the will of the gods and and favored by the omens. And so he now has this plan. He doesn't even go to the king until he sought the gods and has this plan. What a coincidence though, isn't it? That the lot came up 11 months later? Enough time for Esther and Mordecai to save the people? Enough time for the Jews to be notified in a new edict. Well, okay, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Enough time for the story to be resolved. God was in control even over this. Even over Haman throwing the dice. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap. The lot, that's what he's talking about. But it's every decision is from the Lord. And I think, who do we trust for direction? Where do we go for direction on decisions we make. Now, I'm guessing most of you don't roll dice for your decisions. And I'm hoping most of you don't use magic eight balls anymore. But some go to horoscopes, which is just the same thing. Or some other way, some random way. Where to go to God. Where to go to to godly counsel, go to his word, and say, what does God want us to do here? And so we get this picture of Haman, this evil picture. He, he decides all this. He goes to the king then in verse 8. And, and, and he mixes a whole bunch of, if you look at this, he mixes a whole bunch of half-truths, truths, and lies, right? Which is how the best deceptions happen. And so he presents these things. He says there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples. Doesn't say who it is. That might, that might get the king to say no. He presents them as scattered abroad and dispersed, which they are. They're also in Susa there all over the place, including next to him on the throne room. He says there's a people scattered. Their laws are different. He's trying to portray them as aliens, far off people. Their laws are different. That, that is true. Their laws were different. They do not keep the king's laws. That was false. They kept the king's laws unless it contradicted. And so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. 
I don't know, Mordecai and Esther saving the king's life seems pretty profitable to me. So he, he, he's mixing truth and lies and letting his hatred, letting his hatred rule him. All of this because he was shamed. All of this because his ego was bruised. And that gives us insight to who this is. And, and, and we are fighting this in culture today because we have moved from a, a culture of truth to a culture of shame. And, and now decisions are made and, and groups are, are either um, put down or lifted up based on shame issues, which are emotional issues, which are issues that, that can be controlled by popular opinion. And so it's not uncommon for us to hear, don't shame me, but then the very next line is shaming a business that, does, does, that happens to contribute to a conference on marriage or shaming this. And we can't, it's all mixed up right now. That's where Haman was. Shame is, is a gift by God to convict us of sin, but it is not the driving force. It's not the driving factor. And shame now is being used as a hammer to get people to conform when they disagree with us. Very dangerous, but that's what's happening here. Verse 9, If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, this people, the Jews. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, into the treasury of the kingdom, that they may put it into the king's treasury. This is a lot of money. This is 333 tons of silver. Tons, not pounds, not ounces, 333 tons of silver. And we see how wealthy Haman is here. This is two-thirds of the annual income of the entire Persian Empire. And, and, and so Haman's not dumb. He's saying, let me kill off this people and it'll be worth your while. Especially after a failed campaign against the Greeks and it'll be worth your while. And so he presents this plan. And the king goes along with it. One other verse I want to read is, is just out of Proverbs 6. And we get an idea of what Haman is like here. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 talks about things God hates. Listen to this list and think of Haman. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Haman's checked them all. And that's the kind of man that hates the Jews. So we get to 10 and 11, the plot approved. Haman has shared this with the king, and the king, just like chapter 1, just like chapter 2, is not in control of, of his kingdom. He's not making the decisions. He's like, oh, okay, sounds good. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And, and the author is reminding us of the, the consequences of this. The signet ring, and I think we have a picture of a signet ring. The signet ring was the, the symbol of the king's authority. And on any edict, they would put some wax or something, and the signet ring would go into it. And if it was the king's signet ring, that became the law of the land. And do you notice what the king did with it? He said, okay, let me you know, draft up the law, let me read it over, and then if I approve, I'll stamp it. No, no, he said, here's my ring, do what you want. And this is the foolishness of wickedness again. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. 
You have the resources you need. You have the people you need. Go do it. Some have thought maybe he's giving that 333 tons of silver back. We know that's not true from later in the book where it's deposited. Um, And so this is probably just saying, take the resources you need. Where they're getting the resources is going to be from all the stuff that the Jews had because they're going to pillage them and steal from them after they've killed them. So then we get to point number four, the plot commanded. And this is where we begin to leave the tension for the next chapter. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict that, that had everything written there, it was given and it was to go to all the land. And you see that to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. And so we, we see that all this is codified. It's put into place, sent out to the whole kingdom. We have a picture of the kingdom again, just to remind us this is vast. And it included Israel. It included Egypt. It went all the way over to India or modern-day Pakistan. It, this was the, the, the major kingdom of the day. And it's sent out throughout that entire kingdom because this was to be an existential threat to the Jews a threat that would completely kill them and annihilate them. It's interesting, something that we might miss as, as people that aren't living in, in the time. The 13th day of the first month is when this is given out. The 14th day of the first month, the very next day, is the day that the Passover lamb was to be slain. And Haman, I believe, intentionally does this at the time where they are celebrating God's deliverance from their annihilation in Egypt or, or from slavery in Egypt. And, and there's this tension like, okay, God may have saved you from Egypt, but he's not going to save you from my hand. In fact, I'm going to kill you off. I can only imagine people celebrating God's deliverance and then going outside and seeing this edict that in 11 months they're all to be killed. And I can see the question, God saved us before. Can he do it again? Can he? Will he? And we see on in 13 just how serious this is. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions. And and he gives three words here that all say the same thing, but that compounds the impact. With instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their goods. And so this was to be done 11 months from now when the dice, the the God of the dice had said this was time. Israel was to be destroyed. The line of the Messiah was to be destroyed. They had all the people they needed and, and that probably means some soldiers that could help out. They had all the resources they needed and they decided to kill him off. What Saul didn't do to Agag and his people, Haman was now going to do to the Jews. Copy was sent out to every province in verse 14. Proclamation, be ready for this. And 15 ends just in a chilling way. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. That's where they're at. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. They had a a little banquet. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And and, and the wording there is is wording of 
it's more than just confusion what's going on, but just an uproar. Uh, everything is topsy-turvy. Everything is a mess. And the king and Haman are in having a nice meal. I don't know if you ever saw this in an older movie now, but um, The Return of the King in the Lord of the Rings series. And there's a scene at the beginning that is just chilling with the, the steward of Gondor eating these tomatoes and stuff while he sends an army to sure death. And, and the scene just alternates between them being killed and him eating to show just the, the, the evilness of this and the, the distance. That's, what, that, that's what's happening here. The city's a mess. They're in confusion. They, they, know, they have Jewish friends. They have Jewish people they like. They don't know what, what's going to happen. And the king and Haman are having a nice meal. And that's where the chapter ends. All because Mordecai did what was right. Well, that, that doesn't leave us with good feelings. But there's some lessons that we can have out of this. And I've worded the lessons just in four questions that I want to end with today to have us think about. Because God is not done. God is still in control. We know that the story is coming. And, and the people that heard this would have known how the story ended. And so they know this isn't all there is. This is just a temporary cloud. But God's going to do something great. And so some, some lessons. The first is really the big picture tying into the, the story of God's sovereignty and providence. How is my faith when I do the right things and things fall apart? How is my faith when I do the right thing and things fall apart? See, even when it looks like our good decisions lead to disaster, we're called to trust that God is working in ways we can't see and to stay faithful to that day after day after day after day. And so I ask, how's our faith? Can I keep steadfast? Can I keep going, doing the right thing, even when it looks like it's falling apart? Or at some, time, at some point, will I succumb to that temptation and give up? Or will I turn on God and be angry at God? I know in a room this size that there's people here that, that are struggling with being angry at God about things. Things in their lives, things that don't seem fair, things that don't, I did everything right and this is what happens. The story of Esther is that God knows. God knows and he's not done and it will be right because he is just. So don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't doubt God. We throw the word trust around. Trust is a confident assurance that God has things under control and that pleasing him is best. It's a confident assurance. Even if we don't don't see it, it's a confident assurance of what God's doing. Second question there. We'll wrap up quickly. Who or what do I really worship? And do my choices throughout the week show that? This is a little more personal question. Who or what do I really worship? What did, and, and, and we think, well, of course I worship God. Of course he's number one in my life because that's what I know I'm supposed to say on Sunday. But the question is, what do our choices look, represent? What do they show? What do they reveal? What is how I choose to use my time and my money and how I choose to act during the week? And some questions to help us understand what I'm worshiping or whether something's an idol. What will I sacrifice for? What will, what will I sacrifice to hold on to? What's most important to my time? What do I value most? What do we expect to give us the most happiness? Because we tend to grasp tightly to the things we think will make us the happiest. 
something that helped me as I thought through what I really worship was sort of turning it around. What would I, what could I not do without? What could I not do without? My relationship with God or blank? What could I not give up if it meant standing up for God? That's hard. We say, oh, I'll give up money, but would I be willing to give up my house? Would I be willing to give up my family if it meant standing up for God? And there are believers around the world that are facing that decision. Would I be willing to give up my spouse if that's what God wanted? And these are tough questions that get to the heart of what we worship and who we worship and whether God is on the throne in our lives and whether he is most important. Who do you worship? Mordecai was faced with that and he had to make a choice and he chose well. Fourth, third question, am I making choices to please God or man or self? Am I making choices to please God or man or self? And that's just something to evaluate throughout the week and, and look at, look at what, why we're making the choices we make. And finally, thinking of Haman under the category of the folly of sin, how's your anger doing? How are you at controlling your anger? Do we have a little bit of Haman in us? Or can we make better decisions there that are more God-honoring, pleasing to God? You know, we titled this, When Right Decisions Go South. And I would say, make them anyway. Be faithful to God. Make sure that we're standing for Him and nothing else is part of what we worship except our Lord and our God. And trust Him to make that right. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the story of Esther and how you're working, in this case, through a good decision that goes bad and you're going to use that to save a people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you. Lord, I pray that sitting in this room, if there's anything that is in the way that we bow to instead of you, that you would reveal that and do whatever it takes to purge that from our lives, Lord that the most important thing to every person in this room is you, is worshiping you, and there is nothing greater and nothing more beautiful and nothing more amazing than worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, may that be what village is about. In your name, amen.